Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ernst Ernie Lucent to the Italian Wine Podcast. Ernie is an internationally renowned winemaker and owner of the 200-year-old Dr. Lucent Winery in Germany's Mosul River Valley. Known for the quality of his Riesings and exploring the world's greatest Pinot Noirs, Ernie has expanded his portfolio domestically, establishing his old-world finesse in the new world with projects in Washington State and most recently, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Ernie. It's so great to have you here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course, of course. So before we dive into today's discussion about opening an old world style estate in the new world, uh, tell us a little bit more about your your history in the wine industry and, and how you got involved with the family business. Well, you know, I mean, first, we I'm here from a, a family business here in the Mosul in Germany, you know, where we own a winery 200 years now in the family here we produce only Riesling, but I had always a huge interest in, in Pinot Noir too, you know. Mm-hmm. First had been starting collecting it because it was my first stage internship was in Burgundy, you know, at William ah. Favre in Chablis, where my father sent me, I don't know, I was uh, 17 years old, you know, and I did <laughs> my first stage there. And the only thing I remember, because the owner, William Favre, you know, he had only two little girls, you know, and he loved to drink. And so every <laughs> for every lunch and every dinner, it was me and William. We had to drink three bottles of wine, a bottle of Village, a bottle of Premier and a bottle of Grand Cru in wow. for lunch and in the evening, you know. And I was not used to these wines, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I barely worked. That's work. quite a task. <laughs> the whole stage, I was mostly drunk. <laughs> it sounds like it. Wow. Well, you know, as a se- at seventeen, at least, you know, you had a young liver to to handle yeah, it, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true, you know. But so that sounds, brought yeah. me to the passion because he always brought me to Burgundy, and that brought me to the passion. Okay, Chablis is Chardonnay, but we have been also going off and visiting uh, the Cotonou. That brought me to the passion of Pinot Noir because we didn't produce any Pinot Noir here uh, in the Mosul, you know. Right, right. So that was really what ignited your your interest yeah. in in Pinot mm-hmm. Noir. Ernie, in this episode, we're going to talk about how you're establishing, you know, European style family wine estate in the in the U.S. But tell us a little bit more just about how you ended up coming over to the U.S. and some of those early projects. About, about 30 years ago, the first time, the early 90s, 90, 91, 92, um, I had a very good relationship with my wholesaler in these days. I met through him a lot of people in Oregon, uh, winemakers. Um, also, our our now CEO, who is with me also since 25 years now, Kirk Willie. Okay. Um, and so, you know, and then we also started our own business, importing business. 
Um, and therefore, that were my friends, the lawyers, and so everybody was in Portland, Oregon. So right. we decided to to start now this our little business, this importing business, and that was two thousand three um, okay. out of uh, Portland, Oregon. And then through this, you know, then I had to come regularly to Portland. And so, and sure, if you are so often there, then you meet a lot of winemakers in Oregon. And, you know, Oregon is very, very similar to Europe, you know. It's not mm. these gigantic wine farms as you have in, in California. Oregon right. was in these days, 30 years ago, pretty much this kind of 10 hectare, 8 hectare, 5 hectare family estates, which we are very much used to, you know, because this is actually exactly the size as you have here in Europe, you know, five hectare, eight hectare, 10 hectare, 12 hectare, right. um, or acres, you know, between 10 and 25, 30 acres, 50 acres. You know, that was more this kind of, for Californian, um, uh, for California, pretty small estates, you know. I was very impressed about it because this is some, that was sizes I have been familiar with. Our estate was also only 10 hectares or 25 acres. And and that, you know, then you're familiar with this kind of business. The people are also very much like this European medium-sized little wineries. The, the whole mentality is there, very much European. I was a big lover of Pinot Noir. I tasted a lot of Pinot Noir. I'm very much in love with the Pinot Noir of, of Oregon. I mean, as we all know, as much you want to have or want to have a winery in Burgundy, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, <laughs> but that, this becomes the playground, not anymore of millionaires. You have yes. to be a billionaire nowadays with these prices. Exactly. Just this morning, I heard the newest price for Grand Cru, I think, was Chambaton or Musigny, you know, something like a 50, 50 or 60 million euros for an acre. <gasps> wow. Grand Cru. <laughs> So I mean, oh. I mean, you know, yeah, that's I mean, yeah, that's you know, it's not a place I, you can play around, right? Like you no, said, you know, or Oregon, you and, have your playground and, for Pinot. And, yes, exactly. In Oregon, in these days, when I started, it was still fair, fairly priced. Sure, all everywhere prices are going up, but that was very interesting. And what for me also, my love for Oregon Pinot Noir, what I tasted in these days, and so I was more towards this kind of the Willamette Valley is for me more old world style, not as hot yet and um, and overripe mm -hmm. fruit. And so so from that point of view, I felt very, the Pacific Northwest and say for Europeans, they feel very much like home, you know. You felt more at home, yeah. And uh, you mm. know, Ernie, today the, the three key takeaways we want to leave our, our listeners with for, for this masterclass about mm -hmm. how you establish a European style estate in the US are number one, what do you look for when you establish a wine estate in a new market? coming from the old world, especially. Mm. Number two, how do you introduce a new consumer to perhaps a different style of wine that they might not be used to uh, when working in a new market? And then also number three, just tactically, how do you balance your schedule when you're working across so many different projects internationally? You told okay. us a little bit more about why Oregon and, and that Oregon felt so much more like home than perhaps California. Yes. Uh -huh. And you also are making made some wines in Washington and have had some projects yes. that there so it's, talk to us a that, little bit when you're coming to washington and oregon and these gens what you really look first, for that that was the first collaboration was 99 when i started a collaboration with chateau saint michel which okay. uh, is until today is still uh, the largest single reasoning producer in the right. world uh, even better bigger as here the cooperatives here uh, uh, in, in germany and uh, yes, and, all, and there, there were, I was also approached there um, by the CEO. Basically, it was 
was mainly my idea because a friend of mine, a lawyer, a very famous lawyer, was doing all these projects, you know, for Louis Jadot and Juan and so you know in in Oregon. He told me, man. They, you know they're doing a joint venture with um, with Antinori, but they mm-hmm. are the largest reasoning producer. They should better do an do an uh, also do a joint venture with a reasoning producer. Why right. don't contact them? You know why don't contact them? Ask them if you guys want to do something together. We always said to put the best from the new world and the best from the old world together and create mm-hmm. something uh, interesting and exciting. That project started '99, and these guys. Immediately, I, w- I wrote to them a little essay and said, wouldn't it be great to do, to work together uh, to make reasoning great again in Oregon, uh, in, right. in Washington? Because, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the reputation of reasoning was always cheap and sweet mm-hmm. and long, which is very sad because reasoning had a great uh, reputation in the old days. It used to be 100 years ago, even the most expensive wine in the world. And so mm-hmm. then I wrote to them and said, let's do something. Let's do some a Riesling, a great Riesling, you know, a n- totally new thing and try to find what an expression for our, our Washington State Riesling. So that people, if they taste the Riesling from Rheingau, Mosel, Wachau, and blind uh, Washington State reasoning that the people say, oh, this is Washington State reasoning. Until then, nobody, you know, everybody did something with the grape variety, you know, but they didn't right. give it an identity, the identity of the soil and the area of Washington. That was the goal. Not, so how did you approach something... that project? That sounds like a, a tall order to take on. I mean, how did you go about that? As I said, I wrote to the CEO, in these days, Alan Chu, and he was immediately interested and invited me and we have been risen to the vineyards. And so it was a handshake. It's great in the evening. Handshake, you know. <laughs> I said, yes, do something together. And Amazing. such a big company uh-huh. like Chateau and Saint-Michel, they have a lot of power. I mean, I was the next day in California and was already, a uh, Harvey Steinberg phoned me already on my mobile and said, whoa, 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 what's up? <laughs> he went, oh, I heard you're doing something in Washington, you know. So that was the first experience I did. And this was a, and this project is still until today, I mean, it's it's not big, the project, but until today, I think it collected the most accolades for the whole, for, 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 for Chateau Saint-Michel. Even though this is such, small, such a small project. And we tried to do a premium Riesling, which is really Eroica. It's called Eroica. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the premium Riesling of, of America. You know, being in the Pacific Northwest, then we started 2003. We started our own importing business out of Portland that we okay. import we import our own wines, our whole wine range, and, and distribute it to distributors throughout the whole nation, you know, all the 50 states. And then being the whole time in Oregon, and this is Pinot Noir land, you know, which was always a passion for Pinot Noir. I said, man, here I got the chance to fulfill my dream of producing Pinot Noir. Right. But I had a clear idea what I want to produce. I wanted to do it a little bit different as everybody does, you know, because in, okay. here in the old world, we keep wines back. We have libraries mm-hmm. and we release wines late. Look, I mean, I'm I'm just going to release a 93 wine next year. So 30 years old before I release it. Amazing. Last two years ago, we released a wine which was 40 years old. This is a little bit the idea of Madame Leroy, for example, you know, this famous, the one of the most famous Burgundy, Burgundy producer. Right. I was always very impressed that she, every year, she, because I love matured Pinot Noir. I don't like young Pinot Noir. I right. like them only matured. All my, yeah. all my collection, 10,000 bottles of Burgundies in my private cellar are going back to 1915 because I like Amazing. them because I think the wines show so much more if they have a certain age. And Pinot Noir is a great grape variety for aging, as it is with Riesling, without doubt. Right. So the clear goal was 
I want to produce a wine which age, you know, which not only ages, I will age it and will. And that was the first wine, 2005, and said, we have to do a selection, go for the right soil and produce a wine. It was only 100 cases, 2005, uh, and we will release it after 10 years. We leave it in the cellar 10 years. And then because this is always what my grandfather always said, drink it young. Or keep mm-hmm. it 10 years, you know, because after 10 years, you have the tertiary aromas, you have the full ripeness, you know. And, of course. And that is more exciting for me to drink these wines. I think a lot of people miss a lot in the great wine if they drink it too young. Because yes. great grape variety, a great wine shows his, own, his real potential only with age. Wine to Wine Business Forum. Everything you need to get ahead in the world of wine. Supersize your business network. Share business ideas with the biggest voices in the industry. Join us in Verona on November 13 to 14, 2023. Tickets available now at pointwine.net. That was the goal, to establish a project in Oregon where you're yes. making great Pinot Noirs, but releasing them with some age as well. Yes, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to us, you know, how was that concept embraced by the U.S. market? How were, What did your neighbors in Oregon think about what you're doing with that project? It started very small, you know. It started at um, first, 2005. I didn't have vineyards and no winery and nothing, you know. I started it with a friend, with a Jay Christopher. Um, Summers, who has a, his own little production in these days. Uh, it was called Jay Christopher. And then 2009, my friend and lawyer there, uh, who is very much uh, cons- I mean, in the wine industry, um, for the Oregon wine industry, he phoned me up and said, Ernst, you know, because I always said, oh, might be that I, if I got the right spot or so, I will, will possibly also like to produce you something, but I don't know the people in the area. So, so he, he always had, had a look. And, mm-hmm. and then Chris phoned me in 2009 and said, wow, I have a great piece of property for you. This is the last really great piece, perfect soil types, great orientations. And in Willamette Valley, uh, okay. in, the, in the Shana Mountain, Rex um, Hill, next to the old Rex Hill, the original Rex Hill vineyard. Amazing. And, okay. uh, and I said, look, you have to take it because this is a hot piece. Take it. I have two more people from France on the phone, you know, they want to, they, they take it immediately. But you have a friend, you have to do something here in Oregon, you know, you have to do the decision. I'm sometimes a little bit slow making decisions. <laughs> I think it's also yeah. a typical old world thing. You know? right. We always we... wait, wait, wait. Yep. Sometimes we wait too long. <laughs> and yeah. so I got, and so I said, okay, Chris, you're right. I always was always a dream to do something here. And if you think that is the right property, and he said, yes, that's prime, 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 take it. You can't do anything wrong. Bought the 40 acres, but then then you have to go also the second, second step, you know, because that was spare ground. Mm-hmm. And so then I said, okay, then we have to do it real. We planted vineyards, you know, it was 25 acres potential okay. of, to plant. And we started to build a winery. But I mean... It's all lots of financing. And so now we have been building Bailey the winery in three phases. First, we need a cellar to, to crush and to, to produce the wine. But then again, you know, coming from the old world, I didn't want to build such a kind of a cheap barn, you know, with air conditioning. Mm-hmm. I said, OK, when, we, when we're going to do something here, we're going to do it the right way, the proper way, in the old world way. Right. That means... Underground cellars, arch underground cellars in the north facing slope of the property, 
So to to have natural temperature, I don't like air conditioning with winemaking. No, <laughs> yeah, we want to have use the natural cool climate. temperatures. Yeah, yeah. But natural cool temperatures in the cellar, natural humidity, you know, for the barrel cellar. And mm-hmm. so we built first the arch cellars. We as it is in Burgundy, you know, these arch cellars. Yeah, and then we built the the the, the winery. Um, so that we have been able to do our first production in 2010. And the next year, we have been then building with the white wine building and the, the crash pad, all the other things, office. Mm-hmm. And then just five years ago, we built then finally the, the tasting room. The concept of a tasting room isn't really as popular, you know, especially in Burgundy, like the way that we see these yeah, tasting rooms exactly. in Napa, right? Exactly. Also here, also here in Germany, the people, they mostly don't have tasting rooms. They're doing yeah. it in their living room or wherever, you know, mm-hmm. because the people all live on the property in, uh, in Germany or in Europe, you know? Yeah, it's a different uh, philosophy. So for us, the production is always first, you know, mm-hmm. that is for us more important as the tasting room. But I learned that it is a totally different culture in the U.S., Tasting yeah. rooms. I, I for me because we didn't have a tasting room, so I I thought, oh, why you spend a million dollars on a tasting room? You know, <laughs> I mean, ah, you never yeah. get this money back, you know. But right. here in Germany, you wouldn't get it back. But I learned it, and I had to learn it. Uh, my people said, no, no, we need a tasting room. Believe me, this is the big thing in this. Yeah, country, you know? it's a part of the and business plan. Yes, you know, and, and part of the business structure. So. As you see, you're coming from the old world. I, I always say, with my experience from Washington State and Oregon, coming from the old world, starting something new, you mm-hmm. also have to listen to the people. I mean, I learned a lot, and I, I totally agree nowadays. Because, you know, from the old world, you're coming there and think, oh, you have to do now everything as you do in the old world. You have to do now in the new world. Uh, mostly sucks or doesn't work. You have to listen <laughs> to the people. They have their experience with the soil. They have their experience mm-hmm. um, with a lot of other things. Because they have also their experiences, no? And you of course. Often, you can't transfer one-to-one things from the new old world into the new world. It sounds Absolutely. like one of your key pieces of advice here, Ernie, is that if you're going to start a project in a new market, is don't just purely replicate what you're doing yes, in your home market. Exactly. But, uh, you taste a lot of the other wines, you know, and then you learn also. Everybody thinks, oh, if I take this famous Romani Conti clone and I plant it in my vineyard, then I produce Romani Conti wines, you know. That's what it's like, such a bullshit, you know. And we saw... <laughs> And what for me was the biggest amazing thing, what I learned there, because Marienfelder clone, you know, uh, is usually a clone here in Germany, which we don't like. But in Oregon, this clone seems to be great, you know, and clones which we rather don't like so much in Europe, but do, they produce totally different wine in Oregon. So from that point of view, when we replanted, we also have been listening to these kind of, um, and we tasted a lot of these wines so that we also integrated this knowledge and also these these uh, clones, which I never would thought to 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 ever would plant them here, but they may create wines there. So from that point of view, if you want to start something in the new world, you have also to listen to the people who has a lot of experience. There's also old winemakers there, which are 30, 40 years or longer there. And they have the experience too, and you have to listen to these. Students, right, you know? exactly. Yeah, you have to understand the market. Absolutely. So, yes. Ernie, talk to us a little bit about the future. I mean, obviously, you're always up to something new. You have so many projects. What's on the horizon? Anything new coming up? Any new project? Riesling, well, for example, maybe in, up in the Finger Lakes or any other parts no, of the U.S.? I have enough projects now. <laughs> you, know? you know, I'm nearly the oldest donkey now in Chateau Saint Michel. I think right. there's only the I think there's only this lady, the PR lady, and me. We are the oldest. Um, 
So that was a, a fantastic project, this Pinot Noir project, because that is the other thing, you know. I think that we learn as a, as a, as a European, you you have a little more patience, right? Um, and so we know that things doesn't work in two or three years. I know in the new world they want to make it always happen immediately, but here the old rule that uh, you need ten years to establish something. Nothing comes immediate, you know. Mm-hmm. And especially if you want to make the old wines, we we just releasing the two thousand twelve Appassionata Fortissimo, our pinnacle wine. That means in the first 10 years, you have to wait. You know? Yeah, you, <laughs> you have, have to have a lot patience, of patience. Huh? Yeah, and yeah, Americans are known patience, more huh? for instant gratification. No, so uh... they, they, don't even, <laughs> they don't even overbarrel anymore. I know, <laughs> they I only know. bought it before the harvest. You know? right. um, so from that point of view, that is possibly something. The new world gives you a lot of ideas, also experience and so, you know. But I think what the old world can bring to these projects, patience, that you need patience also with winemaking. Right. That is basically, and that was in the old days. Look, in the very old days, uh, they had a lot of time, but no technology. So mm-hmm. they knew much more what time does to to winemaking, you know. But then, and nowadays, we have no time anymore, but therefore a lot of technology that we can speed up the winemaking. But I tell you, and that is the experience. I think that is possibly what the what old world uh, winemakers have more experience with time in winemaking. You know, because right. we know because we have wines from our grand grandfather still and grandfather where they didn't filter, where there was no filters, uh, where they had no technology and left the wines two, three, as we still do, eight years in the barrel to settle down everything naturally. You know. No, that you don't need filtration. No? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is something which the old world can bring to the new world to give the people a little bit of patience. But I must say that is not the concept. <laughs> yeah, well, there are things we can learn from from one another. It sounds like yes, you're saying, yes. yeah. So Ernie, as we wrap up, you know, with time, if you leave yes. our listeners just with one or two key pieces of advice, if they're looking at establishing a project, let's say in the US or maybe another new world market like Chile or Argentina, yeah. one or I two pieces think, of advice you would give them. Uh, I think was quite a smart way especially if you're not a billionaire or millionaire and you don't, if you have a lot of money, you can buy everything immediately, you know, but we are not, you know, old world wineries are not super rich or whatever. Um, to start first with a collaboration as, as I did it in Washington state and also in Oregon, in Oregon, it was a collaboration together right. as I started with J. Christopher Summers, J. Christopher Wines, and then you get some experience. Then you learn about the, area you learn about the winemaking the clones and the soil type and that is a good preparation and then you know after uh, 2005 was my first wine and five six years later i started then my own winery because i Mm -hmm. felt more safe then to do something as going jumping into the cold water in an area which i don't know you know and so i know only the wines but if you drink the wines you're excited about the wine but you still don't know the, the soil types, the mm-hmm. microclimate, how the business works there. You know, it's also different. The business works differently as in Europe. Exactly. And right. these things, starting in with a collaboration, is not as cost intensive. And then you can start to produce with your partner. I mean, who usually has then already an operation there. Uh, start with him to do some wines and then you can bring in your ideas and start with a small number. I started with 100 cases and then we slowly grow in it. And now we're doing 10,000 cases. So from that point of view, I think this this is the smartest way, you know. But right. 
you need some time. You have to give you some time you know, for this. Of course. We, we are still not there where we want to be. And this is now after 15 years, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It does definitely take time. So it sounds like a couple key pieces of, of advice, Ernie, that you're sharing are find great partners locally who know the market and also have patience. I think that's yeah, a patience. great piece of advice for anyone. Well, yes, Ernie, thank Rome you. was not built in one day, too. <laughs> very, very good point. It certainly wasn't. Well, Ernie, thank you so much for joining me here, Italian Wine Podcast. I really great, appreciate thanks. you being here. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.